Hello and thank you for listening to episode 224 of 60 Minutes With. I'm Dave. And I'm Tom. And this is the remastered interview show with Fred the Hammer Williamson. Tom, can you still believe, again, I know we keep saying this with these remastered shows, but we had a really good chat with the Hammer. This takes nothing away from everyone we've interviewed when we did Odie's Picture House. But there were some that would, for me personally, were just, to this day, still surreal and unbelievable. And <laughs> talking to Fred Bahama Williamson was one of them. <laughs> this went out as well, mate. I looked at the date. March 2014, six years ago. Right. I'm just trying to think in the timeline of... Because I met him at one of these conventions. You did. You did. You put up a picture uh, not too long ago online, yeah, didn't you? Yeah, it was just like... Because we were, we, obviously we were talking about this episode and we were talking about um, a film we was in, uh, which we talked about on the last show. Yeah. Uh, FW. Um, so it was quite fresh in my memory. Um, I can't remember if it was before. I think it was after. Um, just because it was when I had my beard shaved for charity because, like, the photo of me, it doesn't look like much like me because my hair's really short <laughs> and my beard's really short. There was debate online, Tom, whether it was you or not. You do know that. <laughs> And that was in October, I think, when my beard was growing back, because I left it short. From I shaved it in August, left it short for about five weeks, and then started to grow it back. So I think it was, I think it must have been after. But um, it was just surreal talking to him on on this interview. It was, and one of the first things I want to bring up, and it's something that we've, well, it's my, it's on me. <laughs> I'll hold my hand up. It's on me. We used to get the guests, the interview guests on the show. After we'd finished talking to them, because again, everything that you hear in the interview isn't everything that we talk to them about, is it, Tom? No, we talk <laughs> no. before and afterwards, this stuff that never made it on air, as it were. And we, after we finished recording the show, we'd say, oh, would you mind doing an introduction to the this episode of, of 80s Picture House? And 99% of them happily did it. And I forgot to put them in the shows that we've released, like the Linnea Quigley one, for example. I forgot to put their intros in. So I think mm. before we go any further, mate... Let's take a little break and we'll let the listeners have a listen to the introductions of the remastered interview shows we've put out so far that I forgot to put their great introductions in. So let's take a break and have a listen to those. Greetings from Tromaville. This is Lloyd Kaufman, president of Troma Entertainment and creator of The Toxic Avenger. You know, folks, when we're not making those great movies like Tromeo and Juliet and Poultrygeist, Night of the Chicken Dead, the Troma team likes to kick back and listen to the 80s Picture House because the 80s Picture House is better than The Toxic Avenger or anything Troma has done in 40 years. Thank you. Hi, I'm Shabadoo, and you're listening to the 80s Picture House. Hi, this is Frank Stallone, and you are listening to the 80s Picture House. Hi, I'm Linnea Quigley, and you're listening to the 80s Picture House. And you better be kind to animals, or I'll come and cut you with my chainsaw. Right, there we go. They're the ones that I forgot to put in. Hopefully everybody enjoyed listening to them. The reason... The main thing that, that made me think, oh, shit, I forgot to do that, was listening to the introduction that Fred gave us to this show <laughs> because it's one of the best ones that's been done. Uh, and, of course, I will leave it in this time. We'll leave everything in, his introduction, and then us uh, having a chat to him. Because we never knew what people were going to say, did we? We just let no. them go with whatever. We didn't say, you know, give them a script or, you know, can you say this? 
they just did whatever they want. And uh, yeah, yeah, yeah. Fred went for it big time. <laughs> it was it's audio velvet. It's just <laughs> brilliant. Yeah, my favourite intro, I think. I will mention as well that we phoned him up more than once. So please, everybody... Just kept bringing him back. Please talk to us more. <laughs> Every hour on the Stay hour. <laughs> For weeks afterwards, it was like... I can change his number. That was it, yeah. We just never heard from him. <laughs> so I'll say, please listen after the uh, the end music at the end of this interview show. And, and there'll be a little extra bit of uh, when we first called Fred and what happened, because that is... That's audio gold, too. It's what a man. Just what a man. What a man. Oh, my Coolest God. man on the planet, I think. He really is. And, he, you know, he still is, like we talked about in the last episode, you know, with the VFW. It's no matter how old he gets, he's just, he's a man. I do mention, <laughs> <laughs> I do mention in this interview, uh, one of the things I say is if anybody looks in a dictionary and looks under the word man, it'll just be a picture of Fred Williamson because that's all you need, really. Uh, and it was good as well. I know he said to us that if ever the three of us get together, we're all going to have one of his famous cigars together, which which we agreed on, even though neither of us smoke. It's like, would we say no to Fred Williamson? I don't think so. No, absolutely not. No. Absolutely not. <laughs> so shall we shut up and let people yeah, have oh a God. listen? No one wants to hear us, especially when they could be hearing... The dulcet tones of a hammer. So. <laughs> exactly. And like I said, keep listening right to the very end for a, a little extra bit when we first called him. So, yeah, sit back and relax and have a listen to me and Tom way back in March 2014 chatting to Fred the Hammer Williamson. Yo, this is Fred the Hammer Williamson. Listen to me carefully now because i got something important to say to you. You are listening to Hades Picture House. You understand what I'm saying? 80s. Good shout Stay with us. You might learn something. Hello and welcome to episode 86 of the 80s Picture House and the 27th of our In Conversation With series. I'm Dave, and as always, I'm joined by my fellow co-host, Tom. Hello. And today we're joined by a man who is an actor, director, producer, writer, architect. He's also in every dictionary in the world. All you have to do, open a dictionary, look up the word man. I guarantee you there will be a big photograph of this guy here. He is known simply as The Hammer. Hello, Fred Williamson. The hammer's in the house. Oh, <laughs> we are so glad the hammer is in the house as well. Dude, it's always nice to listen to introductions. You learn so much about yourself. You know? <laughs> <laughs> oh, thanks so much for joining us today. We, we appreciate it so much. We're both big fans. Well, I need all the help I can get, no doubt, without question. <laughs> well, I'm going to start. I'm sure, I'm sure you, you won't mind me saying you're a gentleman of a certain age. But... No, no, I know how good I look at the how you know. I like it, I like giving my age to other people to look at them to see how I compare to them. So I always feel good when I tell people my age. Well, th this is the thing. I you'd look at today's action stars, these these young kids of action stars. I would put my money on you every time. 
Yeah, me too. Because I mean, I you can't be you can't intimidate me being five foot seven and five foot eight. Most of the stars we got. Tom Cruise and uh, and guys like that cannot be my hero. That's for sure. Oh yeah. I remember back in the day, man, when we had uh, Robin Ryan, Robert Mitchum, you know, Richard Widmar. Uh, we had we had guys that were real, you know, Gregory Peck. We had guys that that look formidable, look like they can do what they what they do on the screen, you know. And today it's you know the special effects, the CGI makes everybody look like superheroes. Oh yeah, you're too right there. I mean, I, I always compare you. It's like you're a man's man. I think of like Charlie Bronson and Clint Eastwood. You're you're in you're in that genre of like a proper man's man, which is which unfortunately is a dying breed today. Well, as long as you're not comparing me to Angelou Jolie, who's jumping out of planes and beating up guys with <laughs> martial arts, and, you know, <laughs> don't compare me to that. That's for sure. <laughs> What sort of regime have you got? I watched, um, quite recently, I watched Vigilante again, which is one of my favourite films. You look no different now as you did then. What on earth do you do as like some sort of training regime that you've got to look as good as you do? No, it's really, it's really simple. I eat a lot of black jelly beans. I don't eat the white ones. They goo you up. <laughs> That's the secret is black jelly beans. <laughs> black jelly beans, dude. That's my story. I'm sticking to it. <laughs> Uh, well, listen. I, I want to know what was. Let, let's give the listeners a bit of background about you. What was it like? Where were you born? What was it like growing up? What sort of background did you have? I'm a thug from the ghetto, man. I'm a thug from the south side of Chicago. You know, I am. I am what I pretend to be. You know, you can't walk down the street and have people walk by you and say, "Damn, that's a bad mama jamma." <laughs> you either have that about you or you don't. So I came from that survival thing and probably more than other because I was always a good looking kid. I was cute. So people always picked on me. They thought they thought that anybody that was good looking was weak. And, you know, that's the way the world is. But so I had to learn how to fight, so I just started kicking people's asses. I walked by them, I started slapping people. You know? <laughs> Why are you looking at me? <laughs> so uh, I was a real thug, man. I mean, uh I had to be that kind of guy to survive in the ghetto. So you you literally lived you lived the life that you know us as fans have seen you portray on screen as well. I lived the life, and and what really was my balance is that I wanted to play sports, you know. And and back in the day, you had to take a a letter from your school back to your parents for them to sign and and allow you to participate in in, in track or football. And my mom didn't want to sign; she said you might get hurt. You play football, you get hurt. So I had to forge her name. So I forged her name to the school. So what happened was every time I came home late, you know, after practice, she said, why are you coming home late? I said, because I was in study hall studying, you know, so I had to make good grades to make my lie work. <laughs> so even I was a trouble kid and all that, I came out of school with almost an A average. I was like number seven out of 200. 250-something graduating class, which means that I had scholarships. I could go to any college that I went to. I had scholarships from sports, and, and, and I had no problem getting in because my grades allowed me to pick any school that I went to. So I had a I had a, a very interesting balance there of being a, a thug and fighting after school and then getting A's and B's in class. <laughs> That's a good work ethic, though, that's seen you good for the, you know, the rest of your career as well, though, isn't it? Well, it worked out good because I got to pick the college that I wanted to go to, and I, I I picked Northwestern because I wanted to be 
an architect's engineer and also wanted to go to a school where you got the diploma that, that, that diploma meant something. It meant something more powerful than coming from any other school. So uh, Northwestern was in, was number one all the time. Uh, Stanford was number two. So I picked Northwestern because it was that close to Chicago. So I wasn't that far from home. So I went to scholarship. I went to Northwestern on the track scholarship, not football. Yeah, yeah, that's weird because you went on the you got you got in on the track scholarship and then you ended up playing playing football. How did that happen? Well, a very famous coach at that particular time was Era Parsegian, and he came to Northwestern the same time that I did, and he saw this young kid who was about 185, 190 pounds running sprints, running the hundred meters, winning the two hundred, winning winning the four forty, and winning the shot puts. So I had this this physique that was also fast and quick and strong. So one day he came out and on track and he said, uh, you ever play football? And I said, nah, you know, I dabble at it. I never really, really wanted to play it that way. So I had a, you know, track was on my mind. He says, well, why don't you come change the scholarship? I said, nah, nah, nah. He said, we'll give you a new car tomorrow. We'll give you a new Thunderbird, two passengers, Thunderbird. This is 56. We'll give you a new passenger Thunderbird. I said, really? So yeah, we'll give you a new one every year. Every year you just go down to the Ford dealership and they'll change it and give you a new one. I mean, uh, I about broke the speed limit getting to his office so I could sign the contract. So. <laughs> oh, yeah, you're not going to turn that one down, that's for sure. <laughs> but that was under the table. You ain't supposed to know about those kind of things. You know, those came from uh, the Alumni Association was doing that. The school wasn't doing that. The, the Alumni Association that they had in the back of their hand to draw kids from, from high school to pick their school and also to keep some of the college guys there, keep them in school, they had this kind of resources that they could draw upon so it worked out yeah and while you were there while you were playing football at college as well you were also studying to be as you mentioned just a few minutes ago to be an architect as well that's what i wanted to do i wanted to be an architect i mean i i loved at that particular time sitting at the draft board the drawing board and, and drawing things were was very creative to me and i could do that all day i could start at the working in the morning and finish at night and never knew that i was sitting at the table that long and so when I got drafted by the 49ers, I thought, wow, this is a great opportunity to go to California where the people are more creative, more lucrative, more open to design. So I accepted the, the, the opportunity to go to California and play football. And so I, during the football season, I was six months of football and six months as an architect. I worked for Bechtel Steel during the off season when I was, in, when I was playing pro ball. And I designed power plants in Dubai before people knew where Dubai was. This is in the 60s. So it worked out pretty good. So when I stopped playing football, I mean, it was great working for me. Six months of football, six months of architect worked out pretty good. Once I stopped playing football, I started sitting behind a desk. An hour for lunch and nine to five just did not fit my personality. So <laughs> uh, I started to suffer. Around nine months, the wall started closing in on me. I said, I, I got to find something else to do. I just, I just can't do this because I waited too long. One night I'm watching television and I saw Diane Carroll had a show. She was the first black actress to have her own television series. She had a show called Juvia. And I said, I noticed that each week the guest star role was a new boyfriend. And I said, hey, I better look at any of those guys. I'm going to Hollywood and become Diane Carroll's boyfriend. So I did. I packed up my little Jaguar XK, drove to 20th Century Fox, drove up to the, the gate, and I said, I have a I wanted to meet Mr. Hal Cantor, and I got his name from the credits. And they said, do you have an appointment? And I said, no. I said, you can't come on the lot. You have to be 
invited to come here. So I said, fine. I drove around the corner, went to the phone booth, called back to the gate. This is Mr. Hal Cantor's office. We're expecting Mr. Fred Winston. Would you let him on, please? I up the phone, went back to the gate. <laughs> oh, yeah, we just got a call from uh, Boom Boom. He's down there, left two doors down, left bungalow and all that business. So that's how I got started. Went in and BS, BS'd my way in front of uh, Mr. Hal Cantor, and uh, the rest is history. <laughs> Uh, we're going to bring up like you being a director as well, uh, you know, as we go into this chat. But was was being like an architect? Did that help being a director? You know, like planning things out and knowing what goes where. Well, I, I became a director because, first of all, if I was going to get into the movie business, it had to be on my on my terms, on my level. I had to come in as a hero. I didn't come in. I didn't come in. I didn't want to come in to be like a a comic or another man, Tam Moland, because at that particular time in the 60s, we had no black heroes. We had Sidney Poitier, which is a great actor, but, you know, it didn't kick anybody's butt. You know, me being a physical guy, I'm looking for, you know, some somebody to, to, to look after on a physical standpoint. So I called the press conference and I said, I'm coming into the business. I got two rules, three rules. One, you, you can't kill me. Two, I have to win on my fights. And three, I get the girl at the end of the movie if I want to. You got to understand, this is, this is like 19, this is 1969. They're looking at me like I'm crazy. I'm, they're laughing at me. So I already knew that this work was not readily available to me. So I had to create my own entity. So not only that I had to raise money to make a project, but I also had to direct a project because I didn't have enough money to, to pay a producer and pay a director and then pay all the stars too. So I, I started directing out of necessity. And for me, it was very easy because being an architect, when you look at a floor plan, you can see it in three dimension. You can see what the finished product is going to look like before you even finish the product. Mm -hmm. And for me to put a script in front of me and to read a script, I can visually see the finished and final product before it's done. Oh, yeah. And just going quick, quickly back to you, you know, like your career as an NFL player, I'm a I'm a huge NFL fan and I'm a Steelers fan, and you played for the Steelers, so you can imagine my excitement at, t at talking to you as well. <laughs> <laughs> but I was playing with the Steelers back in the day. You know, we had Bobby Lane was the quarterback, John Henry Johnson was there, Big Daddy Lipscomb was there. Uh, we had, you know, we had the heroes. We had the kind of guys. And when I was sitting on the bench, sitting there. I didn't really care if I played. I just knew their name. They knew my name, and we were friends. Now I'm, I'm sitting among guys that I idolized. Never thought that any day I'd be sitting next to somebody. And I'm calling back to my buddies back in Chicago in the ghetto. I said, man, guess where I am? I'm Pittsburgh. I said, no, man, you're across the street. No, I'm telling you, man, I'm here sitting next to Bobby Lane and Buddy Parker. You go, oh, please, man. And finally, a, a game came on television, and I became a ghetto hero, dude. <laughs> it was during it was during your NFL days as well. You got your nickname of the Hammer. Could you, could you tell our listeners how that nickname became well, given to I, you? I was I was an All American flanker back at Northwestern, so I never played defense. I was I was the guy who caught the passes and scored touchdowns. So the first day in practice, they gave me a red shirt when I go to camp and, and, and throw football, and they said uh, I said, "Wow, what is this? I'm a special guy. This means I'm." something special. This is no, no, no. This means you're going to play defense. Says, I don't know anything about playing defense. How do you, I don't know how to run backwards. It's crazy. So I said, son, you're going to make this team. You got to play defense. So after about one week, 
I'm looking like I never played the game before. I'm falling down. I'm tripping over my feet. I'm falling on my face. They're making me look really stupid out there. So he comes over to me and he says, uh, son, uh, you disappoint us. So if you don't do something better, we're going to have to cut you and send you back. And I, that night I'm, I'm, I have a conversation with myself and I'm saying, there's no way I'm going back to the ghetto and tell the boys I can't make a little put, put butt football team. Are you crazy? I'm not, I'm, I'm speedy. That time my name was speedy. I'm speedy. Ain't no way I can go back and explain I can't make this football team. So I go back the next day and I decided that because I was 220 pounds, I was bigger than anybody that I covered. I was bigger than any flanker back because all those guys are 175, 180. I said, okay, I made up my mind. I'm not covering anybody. I'm just going to knock everybody down. So first play, they send out a receiver. I get about one yard off of him. The coach is yelling at me, get back. Williamson is going to make you look like you're stupid. I said, just shut up and hike the ball. So they hiked the ball. The guy took one step off the line of scrimmage, and I dropped a form in his chest and knocked him out. Coach comes running over. He says, God damn it, Williamson, what are you doing? I said, I covered him. <laughs> he said, okay, stop God damn it, hammering my players so we can get some pass offense in and back up and let them, and let them run. So that's how I got that name. Oh, what do you think of the NFL game today as well? Because it's changed so much over the years since you were playing. Well, the game's changed. The game, the game, the guys don't play um, with pride. They don't, you know, they don't take it, they don't take it serious that it's a hell of an accomplishment to become a, a pro football player, to become a pro athlete. They, they look at it, uh, you're judged by how much money you make. You know, you're as good as your agent decides you are. It's all about the money. Money has changed the game, it's taken the pride away from the game, it's taken the integrity out of the game. It's all about cash money. I'd love to see you laying the hammer down in the game today. If if you could do that, what team would you pick? No, I don't like anybody, man. I mean, I don't start to watch college football. College football, I hit harder and play harder because they want to become pros, so they don't have to do that anymore. Mm-hmm. You know, they outlawed the hammer when I <laughs> when I retired. I retired, they outlawed the hammer. They didn't want to do it when I was playing because they knew I, they couldn't stop me from doing it because it's the way I played the game. But it was, you know, the description of the hammer is a guy running through a backyard late at night and you run across a clothesline. Your feet keep moving, but your head stops. <laughs> That's the hammer. I think you're like an integral part of the bump and run rule as well, aren't you? Well, when I was, when I, like I said, I was I'm 200 pounds. By then, I'm like 225, 220 pounds. So I wasn't about to cover anybody. Your job was to get by me, not for me to cover you. I didn't feel like running down the field chasing you. I just knock you out or knock you down or make you push you out of bounds. You had to get through me to get downfield to catch a pass. So that was the way I played the game. I didn't play the game to run down the field with you. I'd get tired. I wasn't doing that. <laughs> oh, I'm sure there's a load of teams that would still sign you up, Fred. Definitely. Well, it's about character. It's about attitude. You know what I mean? I had a winning philosophy. I had a winning attitude. I played the game 110%. And I played for the pride of the game because I wasn't making any money. My starting salary was nine. My my signing bonus was nineteen hundred, and my starting salary was nine thousand five. Wow. So we weren't making any money. So we had to play for pride. We weren't making any money. Yeah, it I didn't think... change. It didn't change till like late, the late seventies or early beginning of the eighties when they had the strike. And when the strike came out, the press found out what every player was making, and they printed the salary of every player on every team. This created a big problem because now you got guys making more than some guys who were making all pro and who were considered the best player, and the other guys are making more money than him. So that's when agents came into it. Until then, 
You weren't allowed to have an agent. Coach wouldn't talk to you. An owner wouldn't talk to you. They'd close the door. You could not have anybody negotiate your contract for you but you. Once they had the strike, what came out of the strike was agents saying, this is not going to happen anymore. You got this guy over here sitting on the bench making more money than my guy who's playing every down. That ain't going to happen. So the salaries started to go up at that particular time. Yeah. As I, as I mentioned in my introduction to you um, as well, you know, you, you're more, far more than just an actor. You know, you, you write films, you direct them, you produce them, etc. My final sort of NFL-related question to you is, have you ever wanted to, like, write and or direct, you know, a, a full American football film? Well, I wrote a film. They made it, and I didn't get credit for it. But I was just out of the football, and I didn't know that Hollywood still stole from me. And I wrote a screenplay, and uh, it got made, and it didn't offer me a part. And I can't tell you who, what film it was, but it was a very successful film. But I wrote it and gave it to a producer, and in the discussions, next thing I know, it's being made, and I'm not a, a part of it. And I said, uh, you know, you're, that's my story. That's my thing. He says, sue me. Oh. What do I know, man? I'm just out of, I'm, you know, I'm, I'm just, I'm like, I had just finished doing uh, MASH. I, you know, I played Spear Trucker in the movie MASH. Mm-hmm. So I said, okay, I got an idea for a football movie. So I gave it to this guy and bam, he made it. Oh, is that, is that something that happens quite regularly in Hollywood then? Oh, yeah, quite regularly. Uh, any story that you talk about, you better... Make sure you got a recorder that you're talking to somebody about it so that if it happens, you can say, here, listen to this. I told him about it. Or you write it down and you send it to Screen Actors Deal and you register it and you get a number. And so if anybody makes it, you say, here, I sent this two years ago. Here's the, here's my uh, writer's deal number. And if it's 100% that close, then you're, you're allowed some compensation. Mm-hmm. I mean, stories... Stories are stole all the time. Sitting at the table, guys talking about new ideas. Boom, next thing you know, somebody has written it and already copyrighted it. While you're sitting there thinking about it, somebody <laughs> writes it and copyrights it. Oh, God, that's got to be so frustrating as a writer. No, it's frustrating being in the business. The business is all about caca poo It's all about lies and bullshit. It's all about pretense. You know, it's, it's, uh, it, it's not a great business to be in. It's a great business to be a part of, only if you're in control. If you're not in control, you get you get done, pushed aside, crapped on. It's a weird business. Mm. Something else I mentioned in my introduction to you as well is, you know, I, I compared you with how I think of you with Clint Eastwood, and I know you, you've, as you mentioned, you've got your your three rules of the of the film. You know, you don't die, you win the fight, you get the girl if you, if if you want her, which is an important part. I remember the first time. I saw Clint Eastwood die in a film, which was The Beguiled. I was gutted. Now, the same thing happens whenever I watch a Fred Williamson film. If you die, <laughs> I am totally gutted by it. Well, I think I only died one. I think I died in, uh, from Dust Till Dawn, but I died as that thing. I didn't die as the hammer. And, it's, it's, and Eastwood and Bronson are my two role models. Anyway, these are the guys that, that I think, you know, epitomize what I stand for and and there's no surprises when you go see one of their movies there's no singing there's no dancing uh, it's only fighting and shooting Clint did one that was singing and it was so bad he came back 
did a dirty hair and he killed 13 bad guys in opening credits. So that was his way of apologizing. For <laughs> but he had that control of his career. He could, because he had to deal with Warner Brothers, so any film that he wanted to make, he could make. So he had an opportunity to, to take a chance, and if he didn't like that chance, you go back to doing Dirty Harry. I think maybe only one time, two movies he did. He did a singing one with his son, mm-hmm. cowboy one. That was terrible. And he did one with an orangutan. Uh, I think any way but loose or something like that. Yeah, yeah. And Dirty Harry was revived immediately. Dirty Harry came back and was killing people in the credits, man. So <laughs> he had that opportunity to, uh, you know, to erase any bad stuff that he did. That's and I know because in 1982, um, Bronx Warriors, you die in that, but you you die with dignity. It's not only with dignity yeah. because this this flamethrowers on you, yeah. but even though this yeah, flamethrowers well, on you, I love it that you even. You even reach for your trademark cigar as you're dying. That's that's so good. But then, but you know, you didn't. Maybe I died, and maybe I just got burned and got, and got up and run away. And didn't see. <laughs> <laughs> you know, so, but I'm like like Charles Bronson. You know, the older he got, the bigger his gun got. In his last Bronson movie, he had a bazooka, <laughs> so he adjusted to his limitations. He didn't run as fast, didn't shoot as didn't shoot as straight, so he got a bazooka. So it took out the bad guys with a bazooka. That's, that's, that's maintaining your image to the very end. Oh, God, yeah, definitely, definitely. I mean, is there any difference? I mean, we're UK-based, even though, yeah, we've we've got listeners worldwide, but we're UK-based. Us here in the UK, Fred Williamson equals action hero. You're just like a huge action hero, have been for for so many years. And I know... I know because we're going to touch on this in a little bit as well about when you lived in Italy and the Italian films that you've made as well. What is the difference between like the fans of us, of you here in Europe and in America as well? Are you perceived differently in America? No, it's pretty, it's pretty much the same because what I sell is an image. Mm-hmm. Uh, I sell no surprises. When you see a Fred Williamson in a film, you know uh, there's going to be a person of strength uh, a person uh, who has the opportunity or the possibility to kick your ass, and you don't always have to. If you look like what you, what they see you do, and they think that you can do that, you don't always have to do it. All you have to do is walk into the room, and you'll get the respect that you want. Mm-hmm. And that's basically what I sell on the screen. I sell image, as Eastwood, as Bronson, and go back to Robert Mitchum, go back to Robert Ryan go back to guys like that when they walked on the screen, the potential of violence was always there. Mm. I mean, I know that that's... some actors sort of give uh, the perception of their image, but whenever, a, I'm sure Tom thinks the same, but whenever I think of you, I think of you as your screen persona. There's no difference between off-screen Fred Williamson and on-screen. We just think, we just naturally think of you as the hammer. Yeah. Is, yeah, is, well, there, is there any sort of hidden difference off screen? You know, it just does the hammer have a sort of a, a, a hidden softer well, side that we don't know about? Well, the only difference is I don't kill anybody. <laughs> 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 I, don't, I don't kill anybody, you know. So it gives me, Miami gives me the freedom to walk anywhere in America, in any city, in any bad part of the city, or any good part of the city, whatever. I walk 
and through the middle of the baddest guys in the world, and they'll say, damn, that's a bad mug there, boy. <laughs> and I don't get challenges because it's not that I'm, you know, I can win all my fights, but what's the point if you go back home after fighting me and tell your buddies, okay, I just kicked the hammer's ass, but you don't have no eyes, you got no teeth, and your head is one-sided, <laughs> and you left me on the sidewalk. Did you really win this fight, man? You know, yeah, man, I left the hammer on the sidewalk, but damn, look at you. You know, so... I ain't the toughest guy in the world, but I go down hard. <laughs> I mean, we're just average Joes on the street, and we just, you know, we walk where wherever we want to, and nobody takes a blind bit of notice of us. For for so many years now, it must be, you know, you walk some somewhere, people go, "That's Fred Williamson. That's the Hammer." Has that ever got tiresome? Would you ever have you ever thought you'd like a little bit of anonymity now and again to walk somewhere and not be recognised? Well, it, for me, it's it's a little different than most celebrities who get recognized. They get touched and pulled on and and charged for autographs and stuff like that. I people approach me in a polite way, you know. Hey, can I have your autograph, man? Not, am I bothering you? <laughs> no. <laughs> so, uh, no. I mean, if I wanted that kind of quiet life, I wouldn't be driving a red H two Hummer, <laughs> or I have the yellow. H2. A, a yellow H1 Hummer. I got a yellow H1 and a red H2. So if I was looking for that kind of lifestyle, I damn sure wouldn't be driving these kind of motor vehicles. <laughs> 1973, you posed nude for Playgirl. What what was that like? I went for that because Burt Reynolds had just did a centerfold for Cosmopolitan on a ah. white bear rug with his little ass sticking up in the air. Playgirl said, we know somebody bigger and better than that. Playgirl came to me and says, do Playgirl first so we can show up Cosmo. So that's why I did Playgirl. <laughs> um, same year, 1973, you worked with Larry Cohen for the first time on Black Caesar and Hell Up in Harlem. And of course, you also directed the first original Gangsters film. What was it like working with him? Working with Larry Cohen was a great experience for me on the first two films, Black Caesar and Hell Up in Harlem, because I learned guerrilla filmmaking, and guerrilla filmmaking is fun. You you run, you shoot, you don't tell anybody you're shooting, you blow up things, and you say, oops, I didn't mean to do that. It's a great, great way to make a film. When we did, uh, my next film that I did, and that I hired him for, he got a little carried away. He, uh, he started to redirect it, he started to rewrite the script, screenplay and uh, I had to take over. I took over the directing on that one because Larry Cohen just, uh, he forgot he was working for me. He thought I was still working for him. <laughs> and, uh, you know, original gangsters uh, sort of went another way and I had to step in and take over. But, you know, we're still friends. I mean, I pushed him pushed him in the car, slammed the door and told him to get the fuck out. But we, it was good. <laughs> at, that stage, at, that, at that stage of, of your career as well, um, because you know we're going to go on to you as a director. Were you sort of like taking mental notes of the directors that you worked with? I, I took mental notes of of operating the machinery. That's where I took notes from. I never left the set. I want to know what everything was. I want to know why you call this a three K and what does this light do and why do you put that light there. So I learned the mechanics. I already I already knew kind of kind of from being an architect about about how to do everything else because when you're an actor, 
you you feed off of other actors. If they're doing something that you can pull into your character, it makes you stronger and it makes the scene better. I learned that being an actor, you can't say to the director, this guy that I'm working with don't know shit. He's terrible. <laughs> He's giving me nothing. <laughs> so I'm saying, if I was the director, I'd take this guy over to the back room and talk to him and say, hey, man, you got to like pick it up because you know, you're, you're bringing the scene down. So directing is something I wanted to do because I wanted that power to be able to say to somebody, hey, pick it up, change it. And I keep waiting for the director to say to this guy, you know, bring it, bring it up. Get, you know, hammers way up on level two and you down on level one. Come on, come on up. And he don't, he don't say anything. And that's kind of disturbing. And, and also, sometimes they put the camera in certain positions. You know, you're going to look like shit. You can't say to the director, this camera that you're putting now, the angle you got, it's going to look like shit. And you're going to make me look like shit. So for those kind of reasons, I said, hey, I, I got to start getting into the directing store that I have the power to, to make changes and do things the way that I think is right. Hmm. Who's your favorite director that you've worked with? Probably the Italian director, probably uh, two of them, Enzo Castellari and Roberto Rodriguez is really great. But what makes a great director is you hire an actor to do a certain thing. You don't change him when he comes to the set. You don't direct him. You know what he's going to bring and he's going to bring that character to life that you know he fits well for. Don't waste your time. You just give him the freedom. And and if there's certain things you want tweaked, you just politely tell them, you know, do this, bring that there, and they find a way to do that or, or not. But that's what makes a good director in hiring the right person to bring life to the, to the image that you envision in your mind. And Roberto Rodriguez was good at that, and Castellari is good at that. Would you describe yourself as uh, a hard taskmaster, as a director? How, what, what sort of your directorial style? How do you got it? What... I'm, I'm brutal. I'm, I'm brutal. <laughs> <laughs> I'm, I'm brutal. We talk a lot before we shoot the scene. Everybody rehearses. And we talk about the marks and where we're going to go because I shoot two and three cameras. So hitting your marks is important. And then when I say action and somebody gives me something that we didn't talk about, discuss, then it's like, hold it, man, what is your problem? We just, we went up, we spent two hours rehearsing here. Why are you going to bring me this now? What is this? You wanted to change something? Why don't you talk about that while we were rehearsing? I don't have time for this bullshit. You know, I'm into one and two takes. I'm not into 10, 12, 15 takes. Eastwood did two and two takes or one take. That's, mm. that's why you rehearse. When you say go and let's go, you got your rhythm, you got it going. When you do something different, you change the rhythm. So, no, I'm pretty tough. Yeah, again, I'm, I'm guessing going back to your day, you know, of, of being an architect, you use it, when you're using two and three cameras, you've, you've got to know in your head what you're getting and you've got to keep a lot in your head uh, visually of what you're going to put on screen. Having multiple cameras gives you freedom to, to walk around, to, to cut, wherever you feel the movement is right. You don't have to worry about uh, people talking over each other because everybody's mic. I learned that from doing MASH. Uh, Robert Altman mic'd everybody. That's why, uh, you know, his films were so interesting at that particular time because he was the first one to do that. He mic'd everybody, so you didn't have to wait for the other guy to talk. There was no such thing as overlapping. You can overlap anybody as long as you want to. As long as you were talking and had something to say, he would say it. So... <laughs> 
when you've got multiple cameras, everybody has a mic. So you're walking and talking and, you, and, you, and you're living the realism. Yeah, I mean, it's got to help as an actor as well that you're, you're more in the moment as well with it. You stay in the moment. You stay in the moment. You don't have to wait for somebody to get finished talking before you talk. You know, it, it's, if the, the thought process hits you and you got something to say, say it. And it brings down a little creativity sometimes when, when you step on somebody's line or you, you overlap somebody. You get a little a few interesting things happening. 1973 as well, it's such a busy year for you. Every year has been a busy year for you, but in 1973, uh, That Man Bolt, when you played Jefferson Bolt, which it's basically, I, look at him, it's like an African-American James Bond. Well, that was, uh, that was their intent. They signed me to a three-picture deal. Universal signed me to a three-picture deal. And they wanted to make the first black James Bond kind of movie. So we shot the movie in Hong Kong, we shot it in Japan, we shot it in Los Angeles, and we shot it in Las Vegas. The movie did very well. So they come back, and they call me into the office. This is Lou Wasserman. And he says, we don't want to be the first to make uh, too many black films here, so what we're going to do is just pay you off. So they paid me off of the two, of the two contracts that they, I had with them for two more movies. They just paid me off, and then they said, we're going to wait and see what happens. So I think the next year, Shaft came out. Mm-hmm. And then they call me back and says, let's, let's renegotiate. And I said, I don't need you now. I've formed Pole Boy Productions. I'm making my own movies and doing my own thing. So I don't really need you guys anymore. Thank you very much. <laughs> but was, I mean, obviously it's a, it's a totally different world in America to it, as it is here in the UK. What was it like being an African-American actor back in those days in America? It must, it must have been a tough time for you. <laughs> It was it was tough, but but I had a plan. See, my plan, my plan was never to be caught up in 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 the so-called black exploitation uh, connotation they had laid on any film that had a black actor or a black female lead. That action film it was called black exploitation, but I never quite understood what that meant. I didn't know who was being exploited. The actor is working, he's making money, he's having a good time. The audiences are or being satisfied now because the black guys, if the hero when the shooting stops, the black guy is standing and everybody else is dead. The problem was all the actors, all the black actors that were working were making retribution movies. They were making Get Whitey. Now they had an opportunity to win the fight and they made sure that Whitey got his due and that's how it was trying to satisfy the black audience by killing all the white bad guys. Me, I kill black people, yellow people, white people, blue people. I kill everybody. <laughs> I was an equal, equal opportunity killer. So I didn't fit <laughs> into that black exploitation genre. No matter how hard they tried, they couldn't pigeonhole me into that. So consequently, I'm probably the only one that survived from that genre. Uh, Jim Brown didn't survive it. Roundtree didn't survive it. Uh, Billy D. Williams... Uh, they all sort of disappeared because when that genre died, you know, and they stopped making those kind of films, their popularity also died. Yeah, it's, I, I've always had a hard time with sort of like the term black exploitation because if you're going to use that, you're going to have to use like white exploitation, sort of Chinese exploitation. Why, you know, why use it? But like you said, it was, it was sort of like the first era of filmmaking where like African-American actors, like you said, 
could be the hero of the film, could kill anybody that they wanted to, could get the girl at the end of the film and, and they, off with it. And they were low-budget films. They were all under $2 million, and they were doing 25 or $30 million, which was good money, but it wasn't enough for the majors because the you know, $30 million, $40 million grocery is just enough to pay their light bill. But they needed that at that time because they had made a lot of failures. Hollywood at that time was struggling financially because they had made big-budget films that didn't do well, you know. So yeah. Lyle Nelly had a big one out there that didn't do anything. Barbara Streisand had one out there that didn't do anything. So they were looking for some new venue, and this came along, and all of a sudden they discovered that there was a black audience. There was an audience that wanted to see black speed heroes, and they jumped on the bandwagon for like four years, and uh, they got their till all filled up again, and they jumped off. Mm. I, I always look at um, the two, the two main actors I look at now for for starting the, the you know the African American hero genre if you want to call it that is yourself and Jim Brown when you did that you you're the two main guys that did that I mean obviously this others you know you, like you mentioned like Richard Roundtree and and, and, and others yeah. what was it like at that time because you, you know to be a pioneer of like a genre that's that's going to hit big time. Well, it was, it was, you know, it was something to be proud of because that was your goal. Again, that was my goal was to bring that kind of character to the audiences because I had had that image in pro football and I wasn't going to step out of football as the hammer and become hammerette. That's a damn sure. So, <laughs> so, you know, I was proud of what I had achieved and had shown to the marketplace and had shown to Hollywood that there was a market for black actors. There was a market for black films. Uh, unfortunately, it didn't last. And so now they put a black actor in a film to bring the black audiences, but not really to capture them and captivate them. They just want the black audience money. If you look at Denzel Washington, or if you look at Samuel Everett, Samuel Jackson, Samuel Jackson plays every black man. When there's a script and it says black man, they, they think Samuel Jackson or Denzel Washington. <laughs> These actors, you know, working because they're black. And, and when Hollywood, the guys on the 20th floor don't even know who else exists out there. You know, they they know that's who they know. And that's who they work all the time. Every time you see a black actor in a film, it's Denzel Washington. But they got very smart. If you see a, a movie star in Denzel Washington, he's not in it alone. He doesn't carry the film by himself. There's always another white name actor, even with Samuel Jackson, rarely. On rare occasions, do they carry the load of the film? Even though they list as the star of the film, there's always a comparable white actor or actress that carries the the, the film. So they just want black money, but they want to carry the film with white money, and that's okay. I mean, that's that's how they feel, and that ain't going to change. That's not going to change because it's more them than us. <laughs> so, and they control the, the industry, so it's not going to change. <laughs> Um, in 1975, you went over to France for the Cannes Film Festival. What's it like, the process of going over to that sort of thing and trying to sell a movie? Well, I made I made the choice to take my own film. I made my first film, produced and directed my own film, because I understood they were trying to make me believe that a black actor was not popular in Europe. And I didn't believe that. I didn't buy into that. I looked at all the girlfriends that I have, you know, Swedish girlfriends, British girlfriends, Italian girlfriends, French girlfriends, 
You're going to tell me that they don't like me over there? Are you crazy? Come on. <laughs> and she, yeah. She said, yeah. Your film sells for $3,000. We sell across the board. Whatever film you make is sold in Europe for $3,000. And I said, that's totally ridiculous. As well as the films do here, I would assume that they would do better there. So I wasn't convinced of that. So I took my film under my arm to the Cannes Film Festival. I went to the Carlton Terrace where everybody hung out at lunchtime, all the big producers and directors. And I gave the maid indeed $50 every day to save one table for me in the middle of the patio where everybody sat out and they go lunch. So I set up my little shop in the middle of the Carlton Terrace patio, gave out T-shirts to three or four girls that I had hired, some cuties, with the, with the name of the movie on the T-shirt, put my brochures on the table, and sold the hell out of my film. <laughs> so I learned that there was a ploy. The buyers in Europe were convincing the producers over here that the films don't do well over there with black actors so they could buy them cheaply. And that they were playing on the ignorance, the racial ignorance of the white producers in America to buy into this BS that the films don't do well there so they can buy them cheaply. So it didn't take me long to learn that because by the time I left there, the first guy who came to me was Greece. He offered me 3000 and I embarrassed him and he ran away from my table. Came back the last day and he was he bought for 25000 for Greece and says, you know, don't go back and tell anybody what I paid for this film. <laughs> <laughs> but the film, I left there with about almost $450,000 in sales. The film was Adios Amigo, cost me a little less than $100,000 with wow. Richard Pryor. So... Could that happen today? Could you still do it the same today, or has the industry like changed so much? No, the industry has, the industry has 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 killed that because when I was going in '75 up until like 1980, the movie stars didn't go to Cannes. No, there wasn't any American stars walking around in Cannes like like they do now and have the big parties and the big fiestas and all that business. That wasn't happening there. It was a good marketplace, but all of a sudden, America's. Uh, start bringing all their films over there and doing all the big publicity and flying planes in the air, pulling pulling banners and putting up huge signs along the crossade. So it changed. So it became now a typical bullshit festival. <laughs> you mentioned Po' Boy Productions as well early, earlier on. Do you want to give our listeners a bit more background about how you formed that and what you did with it? Because, you know, that's, that's a big deal to film in your own production company. Well, it's all about knowledge and knowing and knowing exactly what it is you're trying to achieve. Uh, I came up with the name Po' Boy because we didn't have any money, so if you work for me, you don't get any money. You get flowers and <laughs> double hamburgers and double french fries. So Po' Boy was a, was a fitting name. But it, it goes along with controlling your own destiny. If you want to be in the business, you can't sit around and wait for the phone to ring for you. You have to find a way to be creative, to make a project or to make projects or to convince people who want to invest in your project that they won't lose their money. So the only way you can do that is learn the business of the business. So that's true for any business, whether it's a movie business or whether it's selling potato chips. You have to know the business of the business if you want to be successful. So that was just part of me doing that. Now, with the 80s picture house, obviously, it would be remiss of us if we didn't bring up some 80s films that you'd done. Uh, one of my favourites is uh, Bronx Warriors from 1982. 
um, which I mentioned earlier, it's, it's one of the few films that I was gutted at because you died in it. Um, <laughs> but one of, the, one of the main guys in it is Mark Gregory. Now, I believe um, when you were making these Italian films, correct me if I'm wrong, you were living in Rome at the time. Uh, yeah, I still have a place in Rome. I still, I still spend a lot of time in Rome. Oh, beautiful. It's, it's such a good place as well. Yeah. Um, what was it like? I mean, I have a few questions. Well, the first one I'll give you is it's specifically about Bronx Warriors and Mark Gregory. Um, I know he was chosen because he was like a bodybuilder, wasn't he, at the time? And he wasn't specifically an actor. What was it like working yeah. with him? It, it, it was an experience. <laughs> um, not from an actor's standpoint, but because Castellari discovered him, he had a coffee place. So Lorraine was sitting on a motorcycle and he had this long hair and tall physique guy but he didn't know that he didn't make footprints in the snow when he walked. We, <laughs> we learned it. We had to learn that from him. And so <laughs> we took it upon ourselves to teach him how to walk without the switch, without the, uh, without the feminine side being too strong. And uh, that was the biggest challenge of Mark Gregory was uh, teaching him to be more masculine and less feminine. <laughs> What was, it, what was it like working with the Italian directors as well? Because you worked with plenty of them. You know, there must have been a good spread of different styles of director that you worked with. Well, once you get over the shock of being in Italy and working on a movie set, then then it's a great experience. But the first shock you have when you go to Europe back in the day was that they use no sound cameras. The sound cameras sound like a washing machine. <laughs> And while you were doing your scene, they're behind you ordering coffee and two creams and a little tequila and a, and a, a sausage sandwich. I mean, all this noise is going on behind you while you're trying to emote and stay in the moment. It is a huge adjustment because in the States or even in London or any other place, there's silence on the set so that the actors can concentrate and get their words and get the lines in. But they knew full well that they were going to loop and dub afterwards so anybody wanted to talk or yell or whatever they just go right ahead and do it because there was going to be looping and dubbing anyway so <laughs> that was the first thing to get over man was to make this adjustment oh it must have been, it must have been difficult because was was everybody talking different languages on the set as well that's part two part two <laughs> was <laughs> you say a guy all right man you know he said that again, I'm going to kick your ass. And he says back to you, <laughs> he says back to you, one, two, three, four, five, six. Now, fortunately, America's mouth moves like numbers when we talk, the, the movement of the lips. So the guy would count. He'd say, instead of, saying, instead of saying to me, you know, I'm going to kick your ass too if you say that to me again, he goes, one, two, three, four, five, six, seven, eight. He gets the rhythm of what it is he's trying to say. <laughs> the words are put in later. But wow. if you count, if you count in English language, the mouth movements are pretty much like saying the words. Yeah. So it was all a, it was all a shock, man. You know, but it was fun. It was fun doing it. It was a little harder working, staying in character and and getting getting across. You know, your acting performance, but uh, you get used to it. It must have been so good sort of living and working in Italy as well, because you know, I've been lucky enough to go to Italy a few times, and I love the place. You know, to, to live and work there must have been so good. 
I tell you, man, any place you can be where you can work and and enjoy your life with no stress and worry only about spaghetti sauce, I think <laughs> I think you guys pretty damn made, you know. <laughs> Sticking in the 80s as well, 1983, one of my all-time favourite films and definitely one of the best starts ever to a film, Vigilante. Your opening monologue, which starts the film, and I'm not just saying this because you're a guest on here, you know, I'm trying to blow smoke up your arse or anything, it's it's one of the best starts ever to a film. Was, was that already scripted? Did you have any part of putting that into the into the start? Did you have any input into the monologue that you did? No, Bill Lustig let me write that. He let me do that. He says, you know, we know your image. We want you to come into this film and bring what you bring to your films. And I said, okay, I'll I'll, I'll write a monologue. And I said, I want to come out of the dark, step into the step from the dark into the light, and and give the monologue. And he said, oh, that's fabulous. We'll do that. So we we shot that maybe a month before we even start shot the movie. I went on the studio and. Uh, and shot that. Wow. How many takes did it take to do that as well? One. We did one take. We did, one, did take. one. Wow. One, we did one take because I, I, didn't, I didn't feel like I could do it any better because he asked me, want to do another one? I said, no, that was it. I didn't, I didn't stumble, I didn't fumble, and I did my thing, and let's move on. Mm-hmm. And again, before we leave the 80s, I've got to ask about the Black Cobra series of films where you played Robert Malone. Um, and I know my, both myself and Tom have got these films and we love them and we both watched them again quite recently as well. What was it like filming those? Well, Black Cobra was really uh, was really kind of the films that I want to do in the States. I want to be, you know, bring that cop, that, that detective where I can use the energy that I have and, and work the image that I have and Black Cobra allowed me to do that. Except they did a Black Cobra 4 that I wasn't in and they just found some black guy over there and shot him from behind, pulled some scenes from one, two, and three, and made a mishmash of a film and called it Black Cobra before. So that one was totally ridiculous. Oh, that's going to be so frustrating when that happens. Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. Especially when they don't pay you. <laughs> <laughs> they, got, they got my name. They got my name. They got the picture on the front of the, of the poster with my Super Bowl ring on all you can see is the back of this guy's head, but he's got his gun in his hand. And you can see the ring that I wear all the time, right? Right down oh. to my Super Bowl ring, dude. I said, wow, man, this is about as flagrant as you can get. <laughs> um, if we fast forward to 1996, obviously you, you're, um, you're in From Dusk Till Dawn, um, and that must have brought you a new generation of fans. Well, Quentin wanted me in the film, but he wasn't really sure... Uh, how he was going to put me in the film. So he, he asked me, you know, would I come and read and, and give me an interpretation of something that they had kind of lightly scripted. And, and I said, sure. So I, I read it. And so then I put my own interpretation onto it and blew him away because I gave him a reading that fit their character and not so much me about, when Juliette Lewis was uh, got really frightened because of all the sounds were pounding on the building and all the bats were trying to get in, and she said, I can't take it anymore, I can't take it anymore. I said, well, cut to me leaning against the wall with a cigar, and I say, 
sure you can. <laughs> oh, that's great. That's great. What do we do next? <laughs> okay. You got this Vietnam thing you want me to, to read and do? I said, why don't I do it like I'm a little off? You know, I know my fans know that somewhere along the line I'm going to start kicking ass. So, but I don't want to come in like a hero. I want to come in like like somebody that's a little off as I'm getting off giving this Vietnam speech. I know what my fans are saying. They go, wow, what's wrong with the hammer? You know, he's <laughs> sounding a little strange. You know, <laughs> They know that I'm coming in to kick ass, but you want to surprise them as to when you do it and how you're going to do it. I mean, you can't, you can't be a hero if you throw the first punch. You're a hero only if you take the punch and say to him, don't ever do that again, or I'm taking you out, <laughs> and you walk away. That's a hero. That, it's like I mentioned earlier with the, you know, the films, like with yourself and Clint Eastwood and so on, when you die. When you died in this, I, I was so gutted, I couldn't believe it. But I, I was, at the same time, I was so pleased that at least you took out so many vampires before you died. You kicked ass before you died. Well, that was my that was my demanding point, and I didn't. But again, I died as that thing, I, whatever that thing was. They made me. I didn't go down as the hammer. I went down as somebody that had no control over themselves because I had been bitten by some nasty-looking thing and turned me into that ugly. <laughs> <laughs> and also in 1996, you starred in the original Gangsters. I mean, again, when we talk a cast list, you've got yourself, you've got Jim Brown, Pam Greer, Richard Roundtree. Uh, that, that's a hell of a cast. It's not often you get a cast like that. Well, this is a, this is a, a script that I wrote because... I, I was conscious of the fact that I wasn't seeing my friends working. I wasn't seeing Jim. I wasn't seeing Kelly. I wasn't seeing any of the guys working again. So I wrote a script that I could put everybody into a, a story and let them do their own thing to give them back the credibility that they once had. So I, I wanted to, everybody to do whatever they were known for doing, you know, being a, a tough guy, being a smooth guy, being whatever. It was my decision to make this film to get everybody, get everybody back their identity. Give Pam Greer back her strength. She was one of the female action stars back in the day who was kicking guys' ass in the, in, in the movie. So I'm going to give her back that opportunity to do the same thing in my film, to be feminine, but at the same time be a tough broad. Mm -hmm. So that was my motivation in making that film, and that's why I wrote it, and that's why I put it together. As soon as I finished it, I get a call from Stallone and saying, Hey, man, I saw your movie, got all these guys in. This is really good. I was it working with your old buddy. I said, it was great, man. Once you pay them and make everybody happy, you got no problems. He said, all right. So then I look up, it comes uh, Indispensables or Indisposable, whatever that one he's made. He went back and got all his buddies that he had worked with and wanted to work with before and put them in his film. Yeah. And now he's doing he's doing number four now, I believe. Yeah. It, it two th let's fast forward to 2004 as well. There was a little bit of change of pace with the films that you'd done previously because you you were Captain Dobie in the Starsky and Hutch remake. How did how did that come about? Well, they they came to me and they said, we want you to play the police chief. You know, we need a police chief, somebody that's strong. I said, listen, I, I'm going to play. If I do this role, I'm not going to be the typical fat, black, out of shape, screaming screaming police chief i say i'm bringing the strength of my character to play the police chief you want that screaming black, fat black guy go get somebody else because 
I'm not doing it. Because <laughs> that's, that's all those roles are, man. The police chief is always some fat black guy smoking a big fat-ass cigar and yelling and screaming. I said, I don't smoke fat cigars. I smoke long, skinny cigars, and I ain't screaming. <laughs> so, uh, all right, Hammer. Do what you want. Am I right in saying as well that, I mean, you've got your trademark cigar. Yeah. Am I right in saying this, especially made for you as well? I make my own. I have my own plantation. I have four little white people in Ocho Rios sitting, living in my house and and growing my cigars for me. That's where I get my own. Oh, Oh, man. Is is there any way that anybody else can buy them or are they just especially for you? Not it, Hammer. Hammer style. You die. (laughs) Oh, I love it. If if there's any any going spare, please send send a couple over to the HS Pitch House. We would love, we would we would frame them. Trust me, they would never be smoked. They would just be framed. Yeah, they're uh, forty six rings and they're nine inches. Oh, because yeah, because they're they're, they're like a long, they're very distinctive, aren't they? They're like a long thin yes. cigar. Where most people you yes. see like the shorter, fatter cigar, you've got a very distinctive style with them. Well, everybody started, you know, I created the cigar chain. Everybody started smoking cigars. But everybody that smoked a cigar don't really know how to smoke a cigar. So they hold this big old fat thing in their hand, and you see them suck on it and blow the smoke up to the sky, up to the ceiling. I mean, it's easy to smoke, spot a non-smoking guy, a guy <laughs> that really has to smoke a cigar, you know. So it just became uh, a style for them, you know, because Black Caesar, you know, set it off. Mm-hmm. Oh, definitely, yeah. Well, like I said, neither myself nor Tom are cigar-smoking guys, but, you know, if ever we got hands on one, they they would be framed <laughs> on the wall. <laughs> well, I'm coming over there, I think, uh, October. I'll be over there for the, for the uh, a signing show. I'll be over there for an autograph show. All right. Well, yeah. if, you know, if if we get ourselves down to see you, what, what are the chances of, of uh, a sneak of this cigar each from you, then? What would be the chances of that? One never knows. <laughs> we we will keep our fingers crossed let's put it that way i'll be there uh another question i know we're getting close to time with you now fred but another question i want to ask before we we go into your, your latest project i want to ask um a, a guy that we've talked about a few times on this podcast over the last couple of years you've worked with gary Busey. uh yeah. i think at, during at least five films what's it like working with him he has a reputation right. for being a, a, a crazy guy is that right or not no, Greg, Greg, uh, Gary Busey is totally out of his mind. He's about as crazy as he can get. But he's a good guy. He's a guy with a great heart. And the reason why they don't like him is because he tests people. He likes to see how far he can push somebody before they do something back to him. Mm-hmm. He and most of the directors are, are weak guys. I mean, they don't know anything about, hey, if you don't shut up, I'm going to kick your ass. They don't know about that. But that's what I did to him. I I knew he had a bad reputation. The first film we made together was with South Beach. He came on the set and I said, Can I talk to you for a minute? He said, Yeah, we can talk. So I took him I took him in another room and I slammed him against the wall, I held him by the throat. I said, If you give me a problem, I'm gonna do this to you every day. He said, You're my man. I love you, man. We became friends. So that's my that's my, my thing with Gary, but what that did was create a bigger problem for me because now if I see him someplace that we're around, he attacks me and, we be, and it becomes a wrestling match. No matter what I'm wearing, what he's wearing, it becomes a goddamn wrestling match. You know? <laughs> and then I have 
Then he has to say, okay, when I got his arm bent or in the chokehold, and we go, okay, okay, okay. Then we always know we're okay. <laughs> One time we were at a banquet, man, and and, and since you in a big banquet room, and I'm sitting there with my tux on, my wife is sitting at the table, and I see somebody coming toward me, and before I could recognize Gary, he has leaped over the table on me. We're on the floor wrestling in our tuxedos. I drag him out in the hallway, get a chokehold on him, and he goes, okay, okay, okay. That was it. I mean, <laughs> so, Gary is not a problem if you face up to Gary, but he's the kind of guy, he'll start doing a scene, and then he'll say, I don't think I want to say that anymore. I don't. I don't think I'll say that. That doesn't fit my character. And then the director would say, "Oh well, Mr. Busey, uh, fine. If you want to do something different, go ahead. And why don't you do one your way, and one my way?" And Gary says, "Well, I'm not doing shit your way. I'm doing it mine." <laughs> <laughs> and my set, he says, "Am I don't think I'm going to do this." I said, "What? I I didn't say that." I didn't say anything. I said, what are you trying to say again? No, no, you didn't hear right. No, just shoot, shoot, roll. Because <laughs> right? I'm walking toward him as I'm saying it. What are you trying to, what are you saying, Gary? No, no, I didn't say anything. I'm, hey, Emma, calm down. <laughs> you know, he's that kind of guy. He's a good guy, but he tests people. And if you're, and if you fall for his stuff, you're going to have a hard, hard shoot and a hard day. Oh, yeah, I can imagine it. You know, but I've got to say my money would be on you every time, Fred. That's for sure. <laughs> But but it's it's just a test, you know. It's just a test that he uh, he likes to test the people that he's working with and see how much you can get away with. What what we need to do now, Fred? I know we we've talked about your fantastic career, and of course, you, hopefully, you know by now. But you're what, such big fans, myself and Tom, are of you. You've got a project on the go at the moment, and we've we've tweeted about it. And I know you're 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 currently trying to get the funds raised for it. Right. Please, right. please tell all our listeners across the world about old school gangsters. We have heard about how successful was how success, success, we have heard how successful original gangsters was, Dark Me and Jim Brown and Pam Greer and Richard Roundtree. Now I'm in the process of putting together a sequel. The sequel is called Old School Gangsters. It stars the same cast, me, Jim Brown, Richard Roundtree, Pam Greer, Bernie Casey, Antonio Fargus. Robert Forster. Uh, surprisingly, the budget is a million five. Mm -hmm. Not so surprisingly. I'm having a hell of a time raising a million five. I'm trying to do part two of Original Gangsters while Stallone is doing part five on his film that's a direct copy of the film that I did. Uh, it's amazing that it's still difficult to raise money for a project that is a winner. I mean, how can this project not be a winner out of Megan Five? Mm -hmm. But unfortunately, having a hard time getting it together. But hey, it's time of time, and I won't give up till I get it done. Oh, we're, we're so pleased you're not going to give up because I know we've tweeted about it and we put it on the Facebook and we continue to, to to promote it because this this is a film that we're just dying to see. It and again, mm -hmm. I have I can't believe that film studios wouldn't give any backing because this is a surefire winner. Who wouldn't want to well, see this? Well, let's see how surefire it is. Every studio wants to distribute it. They keep contacting me and says, Hammer, you got the money yet? When are you going to make it? Can we uh, can we distribute it? This is Warner Brothers. This is Universal. This is Everybody wants to distribute the movie. 
but nobody want to put up a million five to make the film. It's uh, <sighs> it's it's ridiculous, and you know it shows you that really things haven't really changed a lot. They've gone underground. Yeah. Well, you could be, if we had a, if we had the money, we we would give it to you straight away, Fred, because we want to see this film made immediately. That's for sure. Yeah, no, it's a good film with everybody doing the things that you know that they can do, and what you what made them famous. They're back into their characters again, because you see them doing other films and other things. They're they're not in character. They're just getting a job and they're getting a paycheck because nobody is, mm-hmm. you know, considering who they are and what they represent. And they yeah. do each one of these actors represent. A genre, and well, all you got to do is give them something that they do that yeah. fits the genre. Well, like I said at the start of the show, um, you're you're the ultimate man's man. We we we've loved and will continue to love everything that you do. We're so pleased that you're still making movies. Every every time you watch something, it's we have to buy it. We have to, we have to watch it. We've got our fingers crossed. The old school gangsters happens. We'll do everything that we can to promote it and to try to get trying to get this made. Um, one thing that listeners will want to know is there any way in the social media age that they can sort of like find and follow you and what you do online? Is there any links that you that we can put onto our website for you? I'm impossible to reach. You can't find him. <laughs> I don't tweet. I don't Twitter. I don't Booter. I don't do none of that stuff, man. <laughs> I would be, I would be under underwater, dude, if I gave it all. <laughs> but I can say my my next two films that are coming out. I did a film in Germany called uh, Atomic Eden, and Hitler had an atomic weapon that he'd hid in one of his bunkers, and all the bad guys are trying to get it, and I've been hired to get it before they do. So I want you to know that you're safe. I got it. I want to watch that already. You've you've yeah. sold it. You've sold it to me in a couple of sentences. There you go. <laughs> we shot it in Berlin, so it was a, it's a pretty good film. It's coming out. They're editing and putting the music and all that stuff on it now, so it'll be out pretty soon. It's called Atomic Eden. Oh, you can guarantee we'll be talking about that on the podcast. That's for sure. Okay. <laughs> good well, listen, listen, Fred the Hammer Williamson. You have no idea what it's. What a thrill it's been for myself and Tom to chat with you. With like, you know, we said we're two huge fans. Yeah. For you, to, for you to give us the time to chat with you for you know over an hour now. Well, it's, 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 it's been, been fun. If you call me next week and ask me the same questions, you'll probably get different answers. I never say the same. Thing. <laughs> <laughs> I, if, the, if the opportunity arises to chat with you again, friend, we'll we'll be immediately there. And you know, okay. f- fingers fingers crossed for old school gangsters because yeah, uh, it, right. it's a it's so a, it's a good film chance. We... Look, look look for me up in London when I come through there. Oh yeah, yeah I'm, we, I'm already there. So <laughs> we will, we will be. We'll get in touch with you before then. You can guarantee that both myself and Tom will okay. be there. Um, I'm saying it now. We will be expecting a cigar. That's all I'm going to say. Ah. <laughs> <laughs> uh, okay. All right. Thanks, Fred. It's been a, it's Thank been you an absolute, it's, it's right. absolute pleasure. And long may you continue to entertain us. Thank you very much. All right. Thanks, Fred. Bye-bye. Bye bye. Ciao. 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 Yo, this is the hammer. Jump on your message and number now. You just may be interfering with my slumber, and I will get back at you somehow.
At the tone, please record your message. When you've finished recording, you may hang up or press 1 for more options. Hi Fred, this is Dave and Tom from the 80s Picture House and that is the best answer phone message I have ever heard in my entire <laughs> life. That is amazing. <laughs>